We are in Zephaniah. The theme is the coming day of the Lord. And the outline is overhead. We have first the warning to Judah of God's coming judgment. And then God's judgment on specific nations, which we will finish out that section, Lord willing, tonight. And then ultimately the end of the book, the end of the chapter, chapter 3, deals with the future restoration for Israel. The day of the Lord is a comprehensive theme emphasizing God's intervention in judgment. In Zephaniah, God warns of coming judgment both near and far, both local and universal. And uh, here's my definition of the day of the Lord. Uh, You'll find other definitions kind of all intersect around a lot of the same themes here. But uh, here's my definition. The day of the Lord is the time when God overtly intervenes in human affairs, especially in relation to Israel, with catastrophic judgment in fulfillment of prophecy, which overwhelmingly demonstrates His Lordship. That is the point of the day of the Lord. Well, Zephaniah begins the book with a universal judgment theme, as we find in the very first three verses. Then he addresses judgment related to Judah and Jerusalem in chapter 1, 4 through 17. Then back to a universal emphasis in 118. Then in 2, 1 through 3, once again, Judah is in view. And then in 2, 4 through 15, the surrounding nations of Israel are addressed. And then in 3, 1 through 7, Jerusalem is once again addressed and elaborated upon. And this is then followed up by, again, an emphasis on universal judgment in 3.8. And so we see a lot of interwoven aspects related to the day of the Lord. Uh, Note these things here. Uh, Day of the Lord judgment, interwoven aspects, near and yet far, local, universal, Judah and Jerusalem, and then the nations, all the nations. So you've got all of these things kind of interwoven together. Uh, in relationship to this comprehensive Day of the Lord theme. And there is in the prophetic scriptures that which is known as prophetic telescoping. And so it looks like this, if you were to illustrate it. You've got near fulfillment, which in this case, Babylonian captivity, one aspect of the Day of the Lord, which kind of foreshadows even a greater Day of the Lord in the far future, a far fulfillment. And so... uh, We see this in lots of ways. Uh, Isaiah would speak of the first coming of Christ, but also in the second coming of Christ, and sometimes in the same breath. And so these things are kind of interwoven in terms of prophetic telescoping. Well, often these layers of prophecy are interwoven side by side, as I say, and the near partial often foreshadows a greater, distant, complete fulfillment. We have looked at Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 4 through 15, which describes the day of the Lord judgment that would fall on Judah's surrounding neighbors because of their mistreatment of Israel. And in that mistreatment of Israel, they showed no regard for the God of Israel. And this happened on a more what we might call localized scale related to Babylon, uh, which really was a foreshadowing of last day's Universal judgment, a universal scale in which the whole world will come against Israel and will suffer the vengeance of God. Well, having dealt with Judah's surrounding enemies, the prophet Zephaniah now once again deals with 
Jerusalem. In the day of the Lord's judgment, God is really doing two main things. Number one, he is punishing the nations uh, for their no fear of God in abusing Israel. And number two, he is disciplining and purging Israel so that he might ultimately restore her. So there's a number of prongs involved in terms of what God's doing in relationship to the day of the Lord. Now, it was shocking for the Jews to think that anything could ever happen to their beloved Jerusalem. Remember, we believe that Zephaniah was writing probably around 625 B.C. or so, which would have been about 20 years prior to the first Babylonian siege against Jerusalem. Of course, you've got the three sieges, right? Uh, you've got 605, 597, and 586, when, when it finally all collapsed and the temple was destroyed. But the first siege from Babylon came in 605 B.C. against Jerusalem. And uh, this introduction is in relationship to Jerusalem because that's where he's now going. That's what he's going to address, the wickedness of Jerusalem in the first seven verses here. Jerusalem is called the city of God in Psalm 48. It's called the joy of the whole earth, the city of the great king. There is no more special city in all the world than Jerusalem. Here is where we found, we found the temple of Solomon in the Old Testament in all of its glory. The Shekinah glory, in fact, dwelt in Solomon's temple. The holy temple of Israel was the worship center of the world. And it was un therefore unthinkable that God would ever allow anything to happen to it. But that's exactly what Zephaniah prophesied in Zephaniah chapter 3. And it came to pass in the day of the Lord related to the Babylonian captivity. So I say Jerusalem was commonly called the holy city, but in Zephaniah's time it became the rebellious and evil city. Jerusalem means city of peace, but it had become anything but this. Well, let's pick it up. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to her who is rebellious and polluted to the oppressing city. Jerusalem is not specifically named here, but verse 4 speaks of a location that has the sanctuary, which would have been Jerusalem. So conservative scholars, all the scholars that I read, are in agreement that the city of Jerusalem is in view in these verses. Not, not really any debate there. So we believe Jerusalem is being addressed here. The word woe expresses painful calamity that is about to come upon Jerusalem, which it did in the Babylonian captivity. And this is about to happen for a whole litany of reasons that are laid out in rapid-fire succession in verses 1 through 7. The city is rebellious and polluted, that is, defiled, and instead of being the holy city of peace, she is now the oppressing city, called the oppressing city. Now, to oppress someone is to do them wrong in a painful way. Verse 2, she has not obeyed his voice. She has not received correction. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. So the number one problem that Jerusalem has is a God problem. She wouldn't listen. She refused to be corrected. She has not trusted in the Lord nor drawn near to Him. Instead of looking to God, Jerusalem has come to depend on foreign alliances and on her own wisdom. She is now far from God and refuses to draw near to Him. That's a terrible place for the, for the city of God, the, 
the, the city of Jerusalem, the, the place of worship, the, the, the worship center of the world. That's a terrible condition. God now addresses the leaders in Jerusalem. So go the leaders, so go the people. Leaders are always most accountable. And so verse 3 says, Her princes in her midst are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that, have, that leave not a bone till morning. The princes here are thought to be civil authorities, perhaps royal leaders. And the judges were those in charge of settling legal disputes and legal matters. But they were all corrupt. The princes operated like ruthless despots uh, who, like violent lions, overpowered the people for their own selfish interests. The judges were like ravenous wolves that devoured all the people that were under their control. These leaders took full advantage of their positions to uh, selfishly exploit the people. Uh, David Levy makes this comment. The foundation of any society is the integrity of its judicial system. Maybe let that soak in. Uh, when the courts become so degraded that injustice rather than justice is meted out, society is on the brink of total decline. And when you have a country in which a person can be considered for the Supreme Court and with a straight face claim they don't know the difference between a man and a woman, you seriously wonder how long such a society can continue. I mean, when the nominee to serve on the Supreme Court was asked, can you provide a definition for the word woman? And the nominee responds by saying, I'm not a biologist. That's where we are. We don't even have the common sense to know the basic difference between a man and a woman in the highest levels of our society related to the Supreme Court. Wow, that's flat out crazy. We are completely out of our minds, spiritually speaking. And they do so with a straight face. Indeed, they walk in darkness, deep darkness. That's where Jerusalem was. Their judges were completely perverted. Verse 4, her prophets are insolent, treacherous people. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. When it says her prophets are insolent, this Hebrew word is the same Hebrew word translated as unstable in Genesis 49.4. Some translate it as fickle in the sense of being superficial, shallow, irresponsible in their supposed prophetic ministry. They claim to speak for God, but in truth they are frivolous. And as such they are treacherous, meaning harmfully unfaithful. And the priests have polluted the sanctuary, treating that which is holy as though it were common. They show no proper reverence for the things of God. And whereas the priests were charged with the responsibility of properly teaching the law of God, instead they do violence to it. Note the language. They have done violence to the law. Violence is an, an extreme form of aggression that attacks or assaults. 
So here they were, those supposed to be teaching the law without compromise, but they are violating it. It's like they were committing an all-out attack on the Word of God, on the law of God. And we not only have that stated here, Ezekiel twenty-two twenty-six. Her priests have violated my law and profaned my holy things. They have not distinguished between the holy and the unholy, nor have they made known the difference between the, the unclean and the clean. And they have hidden their eyes from my Sabbaths, so that I am profaned among them. There was no reverence for God on the part of these spiritual leaders. Stephen, the very first martyr of the church, looking back on the history of Israel's spiritual leaders, said this, you know, right before they killed him. You can say these things, but sometimes you only say them once because they kill you, right? That's what happened. He said, you stiff-necked and uncircumcising heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. It's a long trait in terms of Israel's spiritual leaders. Verse 5, the Lord is righteous in her midst. He will do no unrighteousness. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He never fails. But the unjust knows no shame. Now, in verse 2, the Lord is said to be her God. As bad as things were, note that he talks about there in verse 2. She has not obeyed his voice, not received correction. She is not trusting the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. Her God. Still called her God. And now in verse 5, the Lord who is righteous is said to be in her midst. Now how can this stand? The premise is this. Can a righteous God just let the people he associates with, being called their God, who dwells in their midst, can he just let them get away with their evil ways? And the answer is, of course not. Because of who he is. God never does unrighteousness. He will do what is right and bring judgment on wickedness. He consistently testifies of his justice without fail. It will come out. The idea of every morning he brings his justice to light is that not a day passes, but we see instances of his goodness to righteous men and of his vengeance on the wicked. In Psalm 711, it says, God is angry with the wicked every day. Barnes notes on the Bible says, Day by day, God gives some warning of his judgments by chastisements which are felt to be his on this side or on that or on all around. He gives examples which speak to the sinner's heart. And the sense here seems to be that God always sees to it that he has a faithful prophet on the scene to bring his convicting truth to the light. Every morning shows how they do this in a regular fashion. And this is the theme that we have in the prophets consistently. Jeremiah 7.25, Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have even sent to you all my servants, the prophets, daily, rising up early, and sending them. They were holding the truth out before the people of God. God always had his prophets in place. 
Small remnant, but they were there doing what God had sent them to do. And none of the true prophets were popular because they kept calling the people to repentance. So it's not like they didn't know. It's not like they weren't told. There was no excuse. And yet the unjust, here it says, knows no shame. They don't blush. They are hardened with a seared conscience, as it were. Again, in Jeremiah, we read, Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No. They were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. Therefore they shall fall among those who fall. At the time I will punish them. They shall be cast down, says the Lord. J. Vernon McGee makes this comment. The minute that his people do evil while God does nothing, it looks as if God approves that sort of thing. However, God says that he intends to move in judgment. God will, do, uh, God will not do iniquity. And I might add, he will not put up with it. And to prove it, God has a track record here. Verse 6, I have cut off nations. Their fortresses are devastated. I have made their streets desolate with none passing by. Their cities are destroyed. There is no one, no inhabitant. Now, the most obvious examples at this point in history had been when God allowed his people, Israel, to conquer the Canaanites because of their extravagant wickedness. For example, in Leviticus, we read about the Canaanites. Do not defile yourselves with any of these things, for by all these the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you. For the land is defiled, therefore I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it. God brought judgment to bear. To what end? And the land vomits out its inhabitants. And then he says in verse 28, Lest the land vomit you out also when you defile it, as it vomited out the nations that were before you. God says, don't, don't go that way. This is what happens. This was part of Israel's history. They had seen what God had done to the wicked Canaanites, to these other nations. They were cut off from being nations. The Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, they were all cut off. And in recent history, in 722 B.C., God had cut off the northern kingdom because of their sinfulness, the northern kingdom of Israel, by allowing Assyria to take them captive. In both cases, there was no defense. Their fortresses were devastated. Their streets became desolate. Their cities were destroyed, leaving the land decimated. Judah knew the reality of God's sovereign dealings in this way. They knew the history of these things. Now in verse 7, we have a glimpse into God's inner thoughts. Here's what God was thinking. I said, verse 7, I said, surely you will fear me. You will receive instruction so that her dwelling would not be cut off. Despite everything for which I punished her, but they rose early and corrupted all their deeds. So God's desire was that the object lesson of the nations judged would serve as a deterrent for Judah. The goal is that they would see God's judgment on these other nations and therefore properly fear, reverence God, 
and receive correction to where they were once again in step with God and His will and would thus avoid the day of the Lord judgments. We see a similar thing in uh, Jeremiah chapter 3. And I said, after she had done all these things, return to me. Talking about Israel. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. Judah saw what happened to the northern kingdom. Then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. Judah didn't learn a lesson from the northern kingdom. And what happened there? They saw it, but they didn't learn from it at all. You know, God intends his object lessons in history to be taken seriously. I, I think it's one of the things I think about the Old Testament so valuable. Uh, there are enduring lessons here from biblical history. But they uh, didn't learn. Uh, it was true of the nations that failed to properly treat Israel because they overlooked what God does to those who violate his people. It was also true of Judah, who failed to take seriously what had happened to these other nations that failed to reverence God. You know, this has famously been said. It's probably largely true, right? History teaches us that man learns nothing from history. I think that's a general statement, but it's generally true, especially from biblical history. I mean, okay, what's history out here? If you leave God out of the equation, you're just kind of swimming around in a big ocean or whatever it's out here. But... If you have a biblical frame where you understand God is sovereignly in control of history, there's lessons to be learned. Well, too often this seems to be the sad case. In fact, not only did Judah fail to take a lesson from history and respond with reverential fear, they in fact all the more eagerly rose early to corrupt themselves. It shows they were eager to do it. They truly loved darkness rather than light, and they zealously went after the darkness. This means that before God brings about Israel's ultimate restoration, he first has to bring about ultimate judgment and purging, which he will do in the climactic phase of the day of the Lord judgment. Verse 8, after saying all of this in regard to Jerusalem, he says in verse 8, Therefore wait for me, says the Lord, until the day I rise up for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations to my assembly of kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger. All the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. Evidently, this is a word of counsel to the faithful remnant through the centuries. God always has a remnant. And he says to them, wait for me. Even though it looks bleak, and God says it's going to get very bleak, but beyond that, Israel is going to ultimately be restored, as the rest of the chapter will go on to emphasize. As bleak as the day of the Lord is, the end of the chapter here in chapter 3 is amazing in terms of the bright future that awaits. However, in the meantime, the faithful are told to wait upon God. Sometimes our calling as the remnant that are truly God's people in the midst of apostasy 
is to just wait for things to run their course. What can you do? Certainly we pray. We want to live godly lives. We want to be a testimony in season and out of season, whatever the season. But you know, Joshua and Caleb, great men of faith, had to wait 40 years in the wilderness for a faithless generation to die off before they could then go into the promised land. And sometimes our calling is just to wait on God's timing. You know, Joshua and Caleb, what did they do for those 40 years? You know what they did? They went to funerals. That's what they did for 40 years. That whole generation had to die off. Say, <laughs> when are we going to get there? Well, we're just waiting for you all to die. <laughs> well, God tells us where this is ultimately going. Before the time of restoration comes, as we find in 3.9 on, God has determined a day in which he will rise up to plunder, that is, devastate the nations. God says his determination is to gather the nations, to then pour out his indignation upon them. I'm sure after the United Nations gets hold of this message, you're going to want to invite me to be the special speaker, right? I'm sure that's coming. Notice God describes this as my fierce anger in which all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of God's jealousy. Again, note, in verses 1 through 7, Jerusalem was essentially in view, but now again we have an all-world event, a universal event. The climactic day of the Lord involves the entire world being under God's judgment. The wait for me in verse 8 ties back to the fact that there is no unrighteousness with God in verse 5. He will act. You say, well, you know, if he was a righteous God, he'd do something. He'll do something, all right. Just wait. That's what he says. Just wait. He will act. He will make things right. He will restore justice. It's coming. God says, just wait for me. It will happen in his perfect timing. It always does. As the old preacher said, payday someday. Amen. Payday someday. There's no way around it. The world is on a collision course with God's judgment. We see this many places in the scriptures. We see it in Psalm 2. We see it in Isaiah 2. Isaiah 24 through 27. We see it in Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 9, Daniel 11 and 12. We see it in Joel 3. We see it in Zechariah 12 through 14. We see it in Matthew 24. We see it in the book of Revelation. Major theme. This day of the Lord judgment theme. Judgment is coming to the world. The cup of God's wrath is getting fuller and fuller. And when it's completely full, this end time event will transpire as decreed and determined by God. You know, there's an interesting verse back in Genesis 15 16 where God talks about it's not time yet, it's going to take some time here, uh, but in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete, or not yet full. They were a wicked people, but it wasn't quite yet time for the final kibosh. The universal language of Zephaniah 3.8 mirrors what we saw in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. 
The day of the Lord intervention in judgment will come to a climactic fulfillment in the tribulation period, the climax is in the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we put it all together, the climactic day of the Lord judgment will have Israel right in the middle of it all. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble. In Jeremiah 30, verse 7, we read, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. This is where Jesus called, this is going to be the worst time in the history of the world. None is like it. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble. Israel is right in the middle of this. And, of course, Jacob's kind of that, that old name. You know, he gave him the name Israel. But Jacob kind of refers to the, that old nature related to Jacob. And God's dealing with Jacob as Jacob to bring him to repentance. It's a time of Jacob's trouble. But he shall be saved out of it. God is ultimately going to deliver Israel. It is a time of Jacob's trouble, and yet it is the time of world judgment as well. In this pressure cooker day of judgment, God will bring Israel to repentance, and all the nations will be humbled under the lordship of God. Thus, everything in that day will be properly aligned with God's lordship. The day of the Lord will establish once and for all that the God of Israel is indeed Lord over all. And this is where the rest of the story goes, as seen in the concluding verses of Zephaniah chapter 3. Ultimately, there will be a great purging, revival, and kingdom restoration for Israel, and the world will be humbled under the God of Israel. Justice will be served, and so will grace for those that are brought to repentance. In Jeremiah 25, 31, we read, A noise will come to the ends of the earth, for the Lord has a controversy with the nations. He will plead his case with all flesh. God's got a problem with the world. He's got a problem with the nations. And he will plead his case. What's the point God's wanting to make with the world? He will give those who are wicked to the sword, says the Lord. And with that thought in mind, I want you to note the very last phrase of Zephaniah 3.8, where God speaks of the fire of my jealousy. All the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. That's an interesting statement. God's jealousy, you see, is all about his lordship. The first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And the stated reason is because, quote, I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. God demands to be recognized as God. That's his controversy with the nations. And that's his controversy with Israel as well. This is what the day of the Lord is all about. And God is going to make it happen. God has revealed himself in nature. He has revealed himself through Israel. He has revealed himself through the scriptures. He has revealed himself through Christ most fully and finally. And he has revealed himself and is revealing himself through his temple which is the church of the living God. God has made himself known throughout history in a great number of ways. 
And God ultimately holds the entire world accountable for how he has revealed himself. But again, the climactic way was through the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We note these words in Acts chapter 17. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked. A lot of ignorance back here in the Old Testament. But now the light is shining very brightly through the ministry of Jesus Christ who has come. But now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he's appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. It's coming. Judgment day is coming. And he will judge the world in righteousness by who? By the man whom he has ordained. And he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. You want to know if judgment is really coming to the world? Just look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If it's true, you can count on judgment coming as well. The world is headed for judgment. But in the meantime, as we await, the call is going out for people everywhere to repent and thus avoid the great day of the Lord judgment that God has determined to bring upon the entire world. Sometimes we weary of waiting, but then we need to come back to 2 Peter 3.9. And here we have this statement in 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's not slow. It's not slow. He's waiting. He's waiting for the world to become more fully ripe for judgment. And it's doing more so every day. But in the meantime, some are still coming to repentance. And God is waiting for more to get saved. And that's where we come in. We are his body. We are his mouthpiece. We are his feet. We are his hands. We are here delivering the message. We are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Therefore, wait for me, says the Lord, until the day I rise up. That day will come, but in the meantime, it's waiting time. I would say it's also working time. Psalm 27, 14 says, Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Wait on the Lord, for indeed the best is yet to be. The kingdom is coming. See the rest of the story. My favorite part of the story actually begins next time with verse 9. See the rest of Zephaniah 3. It is truly the rest of the story, and truly the best is yet to come. God says, wait. Wait on the Lord. This is his will for us until he comes. All right, let's stand and have our closing song, and then I'll close this in prayer.